how you if you practice poorly you're going to play poorly and the games matter and winning's fun so practice like you're going to play and i say how you do anything's how you do everything and you know maybe that's a little bit too uh elevated for a nine-year-old but eventually you know my my theories eventually that'll register when they're 15 or 16 and they'll be like oh that's what dad meant Welcome to another episode of the Great Business Minds Podcast, the definitive show for the business of digital infrastructure. I'm your host, John Marshlima, and I use my experience as a digital infrastructure journalist to dig deep into business issues, but also get to know those who build our digital world. At Great Business Minds, we would like to thank our sponsor for this year. GBM is now brought to you by Prescal & Co, a leading award-winning City of London law firm, internationally recognized for its expertise in the digital infrastructures industry as well as the telecoms and tech sector work more broadly. Whatever your legal or regulatory needs are, including outer space, Prescal & Co can support you, so do feel free to reach out to them at www.prescal.com. And our guest this week has had an inspiring growth journey over the years with key leadership lessons along the way. Sam Prudholm is the president of Accelerations Data Center Business Unit. And prior to joining Accelerations, Sam was the president of Instore Solutions and was responsible for the overall strategy and execution for the company. He is a dynamic leader with a reputation for assembling and directing sales and operations teams, increasing profitability, creating customer-centric go-to-market strategies, cultivating cohesive workforces, and growing global brands. He started his career in commercial construction and moved to the telecom industry where he held a field operations role during the 4G evolution. He then transitioned to the data center industry in 2010, where he held senior sales roles designing and implementing data center power systems and supporting critical facility infrastructure. After more than half a decade designing, selling, and construction critical facility infrastructure, he joined the Sub-Zero Engineering, where he would become the VP of Sales and Marketing. He helped build Sub-Zero's global sales team and launched multiple product families to help the brand respond to the massive demands, increase and evolving use of data center containment. During his tenure, Sam created Sub-Zero's initiative to correlate the use of its products to the industry's drive towards carbon neutral operations. This concept is now considered commonplace. Sam's alma mater is the Louisiana State University, and he joins us now from Texas. And Sam, thanks so much for joining the GBM. It's a pleasure speaking to you. And congratulations for the, the recent deal uh, that you've closed, and we'll touch on that um, a bit later in this podcast. But to begin with, I mean, give us a bit of an overview of um, where did you come from and how did you get involved uh, with this amazing industry, which is the data center space? Uh, well, thanks for having me, first of all. Um, and I appreciate the uh, congratulations. Um I first got into the critical facility space um, about seven years out of college. I was doing uh, commercial construction, light industrial construction um, down in Louisiana. Um, the Great Recession hit and, um, you know, private and public money dried up pretty quickly. And so the one thing that was burgeoning still was booming was the uh, the 3G to 4G rollout and all of the different infrastructure that was required to complete that um, evolution. And so I was able to get a job as a national ops manager for a DC power company um, mm -hmm. and, and direct current, not data center DC um, in about 2010. And so I moved from Louisiana to Texas and uh, began running about 40 teams of people that were um, 
rolling out 4G rollouts for, you know, the big telecom guys, Verizon, T-Mobile, um, uh, AT&T. And through that work, it kind of uh, introduced me to critical facility work, uh, maintenance windows, all of the things that kind of uh, we are colloquially um, used to these days in the data center. And so that work kind of led me into a, a sales opportunity for an electrical um, power company um, where I was uh, basically be a sales engineer slash solution engineer for big power equipment, switchgear, UPS systems, batteries, um, PDUs for the data center space. And I did that for quite a while um, and then kind of migrated from there to a company called Sub-Zero Engineering in Salt Lake City that did data center containment and structures. Um, I worked for them as their um, VP of sales and marketing for three and a half years. And that moved me over to in-store. And I got like kind of like a, a, a more well-rounded view of everything from selling the power to selling the infrastructure to um, doing all of the services that um, installed all that power and infrastructure into one. And so that's where I find myself today. Hmm. Well, very interesting story because you kind of got into the technical side um, from, from the get-go, um, which is slightly different from some other guests that we've had on this podcast. Um, I was going to ask as well, so of course, as you were building your career, especially at the beginning, was there someone that was a big influence on you, uh, a mentor, uh, someone that you really looked up to, and how did that person kind of shaped you as a person and then as a leader? Um, how did he shape your leadership style? That's a good question. Um, it's funny because throughout the different phases of my career, both in construction and then then again in that early uh, telecom days into the transition into a, uh, you know, um, an individual contributing salesperson, solution engineer to where I am now, I've had mentors at each one of those stops that's really driven different parts of what I find myself calling my leadership style today. Um Early on in my career, you know, the construction company that I worked for was run by a very savvy businessman. And so I got to understand what a P&L was and I understood, you know, cost versus sell price. I got to understand really a lot of business mechanics that were um, applicable in the real world, not just um, from, from the university. And so utilizing that as I moved into my style of management um, from managing projects to managing people, it was more rigid. It was more structured. And it was more like, well, this is what we're going to do. And this is how we're going to do it because this is the way the math works. When I moved out of that into sales, I definitely had a mentor that allowed me to see people as individuals and not as like numbers on a spreadsheet. And so I started to kind of back up from that rigidity and management style. And I started to look at how that probably didn't do me any favors earlier in my career. Um, mm -hmm. You know, I've always been somewhat of a, of a people person. I'm able to talk um, with people and, I, you know, I can converse um, quickly. But when it came to motivating people and understanding what motivates them, right, that was when the sales career really grabbed that because he taught me very early on. He goes, Sam, we don't sell things. He's like, we sell hope. We sell joy. He goes, we sell the thing that solves people's problems, the things that keep them up at night. That's what we're solving for. So he's like, you got to get past what you think they need and you got to figure out what they actually do need. And that's multiple levels down. You know, it's not just surface pain. It's definitely the emotional pain. And so the same exact thing applies to leading people because 
they all have different things that they're going through. Um, and you have to understand what their individual motivations are, no matter if they're a vice president that reports to you or if they're a factory worker. We need to understand as leaders what it is that motivates and what it is that we can do to help solve our people's pain. And then we can put them in a position to succeed. Um, and then both the business and the people are, are, are beneficial. I love that. And I think you really painted the, the, the story quite well going from, of course, school, high school, college, um, learning the business mechanics, which sometimes we do leave um, universities without knowing um, how businesses actually work. So it's good to have a hands-on experience and someone to guide you through those things, learning about the PL, learning about revenue, uh, learning about losses, how to manage the spreadsheet. Uh, but then that shift that you've also made into understanding the human capital, being a people person. Um, I think that's when kind of maybe you made your big leap into the leadership side of things, um, which uh, I... Unfortunately, I think there's still a lot of people that have not reached that, um, even though they are leaders. Um, and I think the point that you made about the products as well, I mean, you might have the best product in the world. But if you don't have a good team behind selling it, um, the product is not going not gonna to work because people buy people first. Um, at least my view is that people buy people first. Um, but with that said, I mean, I can already kind of get a sense of your next answer. Uh, but um, I'm not going to ask you what keeps you up at night. I'm going to ask you what gets up in the morning. Uh, what motivates you to get out of bed in the morning to 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 do what you do on a daily basis, um, based on what you just said as well? Um, it's it's a bit of a different thing for me. My you know, I came from a lower middle class family in Louisiana, and my mom and my dad sacrificed quite a bit just to give me things that they didn't have. And so um, they worked their entire lives, never really getting to a point where I would consider that they were comfortable, right? They, they always had to worry about money. They always had to figure out where the next dollar was going to come from. They never had the ability to be free enough to experience joy on their own terms, right? And I, I think that is a lot of people today feel that way. And so, and that's not great. That's not great for society and that's not great for those people. But so because of the sacrifice that my parents, you know, did for both myself and my sister, I find myself wanting to continue to explore how far I can go and how many people I can bring to a level that my parents didn't get to. Because not just about me, it's about who I touch and who I affect. And so my parents' legacy is the thing that gets me out of bed in the morning. So when I look back on what they did, I never want to take anything for granted. I never want to waste a day. I never want to forget how amazing it is to do what I do with the people that I do it with and the industry that I do it for. And so I get out of bed every morning, like, let's go crush this day. And sometimes I get crushed by the day, but I mean, it's not, it's, it's this is not like, yeah, it's just part of it, but that's what drives me, you know, the the ability for me to continue to seek out what is possible based on what my parents gave me the foundation of. Hmm. No, I, I completely agree with that. And I think sacrifice, sometimes it is the right words um, when, when it comes to, to raising the new leaders. Um, and you were talking about the legacy that you, you wanted for them. Um, their legacy is generating new legacies because you as a business, as a leader, um, are also creating new legacies with your employees. And sometimes the best legacy you can generate is when someone leaves the company um, and they go on to, to bigger and better things and they are, they've been educated and there's a good vibe coming out of the business they were doing before. Um, picking up on that as well, I mean, how, because you mentioned sometimes you get crushed by the day. So I'm going to ask you uh, maybe one or two examples of when things have crushed you down, have gone wrong. 
Um, how did you deal with that and how did you spin that uh, into a positive? What, what came out of it? Most of the time when things go wrong, it's because I'm focusing too much on the problem and not enough on the way that I'm dealing with it, hmm. right? So something occurs, whatever it is, you you, uh, you have improper feedback, you, you put a lot of work into something that somebody doesn't pay any attention to, and that hurts you, right? But that's not the thing that crushes you. The thing that crushes you is those stories that you make up in your own head about why that occurred. And you let that beat you down and you go to bed at night going, man, this day was terrible. And then you have to level set and say, well, was it terrible or did I just think it was terrible? And then you begin to put yourself, you take yourself out of your own head and you place yourself into the person's head that is perceived to have slighted you. And you say, well, what are their motivations? What happened to them? What was their day like? And maybe this had nothing to do with anything. And I just wasted an entire day being crushed when really this was just something that was nothing. And so I think that um, the day will crush you, but you have to always reach to a new level of empathy so that you can understand people better so that you're not offended by them. And I think the more that you do that, the better you'll be doing, you'll be better at doing that um, subliminally in general, and things won't get to you as much and you'll be able to process them much faster. And you'll be able to say, well, this person's under this type of stress because of this thing. So their reaction was actually not surprising. It was okay. And now I can use that to work around and help them out and help me out. Um, and so that's kind of the way that I've been trying to to really dig in and understand um you know my own feelings based on how other people um are are interacting with me in, in in the day and then i try to do that again as i as i deliver bad news to other people as well i try to think about it that way yeah go to measure go to be measuring <laughs> how those things yeah because i'm sure some days that i crush yeah i'm sorry that said some days i crush people too right it's not yeah. i don't just get crushed i crush but my motivations yeah, but aren't crushed so we have to discuss it yeah, and again, I mean, we said it's part of the game, and they they is part of the journey. But I think I completely agree with what you said. Um, I think it's important to sometimes step out of the box and really look at the problem, if we can call it the problem, and then just see how can we address it. And putting yourself in the shoes of the other person, um, I, I think that's uh, probably the, the biggest thing that you can do when addressing an issue. Um, it's understanding why did this person think that way. Um, I, I often say um, it's okay to be angry and upset for five minutes, but you've got five minutes to be angry and upset, so then go and find a solution um, on how to solve it. So, um, and, uh, I don't know if you agree with that, but I think we're kind of on the same page um, around that. Uh, and I was going to ask as well, so in terms of business, because, um, and you've already painted the, the, the story of how you got into where you are right now, but there's been a lot of times where you had to negotiate things. Um, and I'm talking more about things for yourself. So be it contracts, be it payments, be it, um, joining a company to run a team. What's something that doing those negotiations, what's something that you'd never open a hand off? What's something that's non-negotiable for you um, when it comes to business? I have to have an understanding that the leaders, the people that are making the decisions, the ultimate decisions for the business care about the employees first. The people have to be first. It ha it, I can't work for a business that puts the business first, right? And so in all things, we must think about our, our team members are in our employees first, because they will take care of our customers if we, if we care about them. And then our customers will take care of the business. 
right? And so it's employees, it's people, people first, customer second, business third. And usually one plus one equals about 17, right? Mm -hmm. So it's not a linear equation. It's not linear math. But the other way around is linear math. If you do put the business first and then you put the customer second, it'll be, it's it's negative. It's a negative number, right? Because the business plus a negative number because the business can't take care of the, the customers. The employees take care of the customers. So you always end up well worse, um, even simple math, simple logic. And so my one non-negotiable is that uh, I must have a strong understanding and belief that the business is operating for the individual, for the people. And mm -hmm. through that, both the business and the people can uh, can benefit mutually. Hmm. Okay. So can you give us some examples of how you foster um, a people-first approach within the business? How do you create a, a culture of inclusivity? Um, how, how, you, how does everyone have a voice uh, in the decisions that are made? What are some of the strategies that you use, um, which could be quite beneficial, especially if someone is starting a startup nowadays? Um, what, what will be the things that are good tips that you have that you do on a daily basis that really fosters that culture um, of inclusivity? Yeah, I mean, if, if you're making a decision that's going to positively or negatively affect somebody, you must discuss that with them. They have got hmm. to have buy-in. You have got to get their input. You've got to walk down the whole line of what the change is going to be by first communicating why we are thinking about doing the change. And that why must be correlated to the North Star goal of the business. So yeah. we are doing this because of this, and this leads us here, right? Then you boil that down into how that North Star goal affects them. Greater opportunity, greater compensation, increase in stock price, um, whatever it is, right? And then you say, this is how this will affect you, either positively or negatively. How do you feel about that? And is there something else that we can do that will accomplish the why that is easier or better for you? You have that discussion all the way down to the, the I mean, I hate to say the lowest level of employee in the business. And then you, you move back up into the decision-making and say, here's the feedback that I receive and here's what we're going to do. Hmm. And then they've, whether we choose to do what they say or not, They've had their share of discussions. We've given them an opportunity to discuss it with us. And together we're moving forward in a way that we both understand. Hmm. And that is thinking about them first and then thinking about the business second and then moving everything forward. And you have to do that for every decision. And it gets tiresome and it gets cumbersome. And sometimes you just want to make an arbitrary statement that I'm going to do it this way because... It just doesn't work that way. And every time you do that, you always end up having to over-communicate on the back end anyway. And so just do what you say you're going to do all the time. I was going to ask, actually, because, um, of course, you, you've already mentioned this. Sometimes it would be easy to just uh, an arbitrary decision. How? So when you allow a lot of people to have an opinion, we know that things sometimes can get a bit messy um, and it can become quite time-consuming. How do you manage or in a time way how does he go from, right, we got all the feedback and then until we make the decision, how do you manage that gap in the middle um, you know, on actually making a decision and who ultimately makes the decision? Uh, because sometimes we get the feedback and then we spend six, eight months trying to to to, to realize that decision. And uh, I mean, I'm speaking of my own experience 
um, pre-COVID, where we, we, where we would have meetings with the, with the whole company and everyone has a say, and we'll end up six, eight months trying to decide on something. And by the time it was decided, it was already too late. Um, how do you kind of manage that gap between feedback and making a decision? So our middle managers, our middle, our middle of the company leaders perform the exact same function on a daily basis in the exact same way that I will do it with them. And so they're already very, very in touch with their people. So I can author a process that already kind of understands where it needs to go based on the feedback that they get on a regular reoccurring basis. So whenever I author a process, there's not a lot of chance that the individual contributor is going to say that that's not going to work because my middle managers are so good at listening, talking to them on a daily basis. So my feedback loop is very, very strong. So that increases the chance of a process being adopted very quickly, even after input and reduces the chance of a, uh, like a, a circular reference in an Excel folder, where it's just negative, 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 not working. Um, and so it's a cultural thing. It's not a, it's not a moment thing. It is a all the time, never ending, constant way of doing business and leading people that leads mm -hmm. to speed and it leads to accuracy in thought processes. And it allows us to kind of um, read each other's minds. And so if you think that it's an instance, it's, it can't be an instance. You can't do it one time. You have to continuously do it. And so when you author a process, that doesn't mean that the process is written in stone. That process is written in pencil or it's written on a computer with a backspace button, right? And so you can always re-examine it at any point that you feel. And we encourage that feedback from, again, the lowest level employee back to our middle managers, our middle leaders. And then that feedback comes back to me quickly. And so that allows us to get, kind of do a Pareto, if you will, 80% there, right? We're 80% there. We're not going to let perfection ever get in the way of our progress. And so that also allows us to speed up because if we if we try to author a perfect process, it will take eight months because you have to do trials, you have to do tests, you have to be feedback, and you have to feed that feedback back into the process. And so eight months later, you're there. But if we get 80% there, we can start implementing something in, in, in a week, we can get feedback immediately, and we can start working on, on, on how to make everything better. So I would just say in summation, it's a, it's a, it's a lifestyle of the business, it's a culture, it's not an instance. I think you hit the nail in the in the, in the heads um, with the constant consistency um, of doing that to to really get the feedback loop um, always working and not being a one-off kind of thing. Um, and I think that's where a lot of other businesses fail. It's it's a one-off, um, usually on your way there that you get to to have a say, and then they never gets heard by anyone else. Uh, but then, Sam, before we kind of close off this first part, what's been the best and the worst advice you've ever received? Um, and this can be personal advice, this can be business-related advice, just what's been the best and the worst. And uh, I mean, the best people usually name who said it. Um, the worst, you're more than welcome to throw someone under the bus if you want to. The best advice. Um, I've been told this a lot in my life, but really the best advice is you can't rush success. You, hmm. There's no shortcuts, right? Sam, you need to be patient. Patience and hard work and consistency. I've been told that by my parents. I've been told that by many, many bosses, many, many managers, because, you know, I'm impetuous. I want to move quickly. I want to, I want to, I want to do things fast and I want to get to the place so I can do the next thing. Um, and what I've learned, I just turned 40 a couple of months ago, but what I've learned is that that's not the way to do it. It's not the way I, I don't know who said it, but if you're a, 
if you're leading a group and you're so far out in front that you can't see them behind you, then that means they can't see you either. So you're really leading no one. Um, and so you have got to be patient. You have got to be intentional and you've got to do the hard, slow thing of communicating everything every time. And you've got to, to live that every day. Um, and you can't just make decisions because you want to go faster. Um, so I would say that is a lot. And I don't really know. It's a collective group of people who told me that. Um, but that is the best advice that I've ever heard is that mm -hmm. to slow down, be patient, to go faster. The worst advice I ever received. I mean, I don't I don't I, you, you tend to not remember the worst advice you've ever received. <laughs> right. Um, Unless it's very so shocking. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's uh, and yeah. I'd be like, you can eat oysters in October. I don't I mean, I don't know. Like, you know, uh, <laughs> Or what is it? Never eat oysters in the in the month and in the north. I don't know how it goes, but um, no, I haven't really. I don't really remember too much poor advice. I I, th I think what you touched on um, and the word consistency keeps kind of popping to my head. Um, making informed decisions, making foundational decisions as well, building the foundations properly, um, and then sometimes it, business is not a sprint. It's it's a marathon. It takes time to build, uh, and the beginning is always slower until it gets to a peak point. Uh, where things run in a slightly different way. Um, so I, I completely agree with you. Um, I'll, I'll ask the question about the worst advice at the end in case it comes up. <laughs> All right, sounds good. <laughs> um, but uh, Sam, so moving more now towards the market and the business um, sure. that, you, that you run. So my first question would be more around, because you operate within a very special part of the business, especially the hyperscaler, uh, the hyperscaler segment. Um, I was going to ask how... What are the challenges that hyperscale operators are facing nowadays uh, with, the, with their data center deployment? Uh, but before you answer that, if you could just give us a quick elevator pitch um, of what a Celevation does, just so people know kind of what you deal with on a daily day to basis, um, that, that'll be great. Sure. The uh, Acceleration Data Center Business Unit, we are a comprehensive design build white space construction company that self performs our own electrical work and low voltage work. Um, and builds out all of the conveyance and structures that are related to that electrical and low voltage um, that encompass the white space. Um, mm -hmm. We also manufacture uh, data center containment, data center caging, and ground-supported structural conveyance um, uh, products. Um, and then we incorporate both our manufacturing and our services to deliver a solution to um, our customers at speed and scale. Okay, thank you. So then if we pick up on that, what would you say are the challenges um, the, the operators are facing within the hyperscale segment? Um, availability of all resources is currently a challenge. Um, we have power challenges. We have water challenges. We have land challenges. We have other various supply chain challenges from the powertrain to the cooling uh, units um, down into the white space. Um, and then we have uh, a, a talent shortage and we have a generalized labor shortage of all things. The one thing that's getting better is there is some more labor and talent coming into the space, but that's not due to a good thing. It's due because of other macroeconomic forces that are forcing them out of the commercial or other industrial industries into our space. So that's uh, not great, but it's still good for the industry. And then you have some short-term supply chain issues that are, are starting to get better uh, coming out of COVID, and um, which is good. Power, water, large equipment still a problem. Land still an issue. Um, so um, that those are that's a lot of constraints. I just said, didn't it? 
Hmm. No, no, no. But, but I think that, that those are the real issues that people are facing. Um, and I mean, you're, you're speaking to us from Austin, so a lot of these issues are being felt in North America, uh, but it's also being felt in uh, in Europe very strongly, um, spe especially around power. Uh, I think in Europe, that's the the, the top of mind worry, um, if not since at least the, the invasion of Ukraine um, by Russia. But uh, and then the other thing that I think it's coming into market, or at least has made a lot of headlines over the last few months, has really been this rush of AI. Uh, applications coming into this space and then we've seen the headlines of people just building hundreds of megawatts gigawatts of data center space uh, to accommodate all the capacity demands that uh, ai is pushing in um how from what you do from what you do how have you seen ai change the requirements how has ai impacted the development of data centers and uh, are people future proofing enough or is it impossible to even future proof like before it's very difficult to future-proof. I think that there are thoughts and there are goals to future-proof as much as possible. One thing that they've done from a future-proofing standpoint is they are pre-leasing unbuilt properties, right? Um, so they're future-proofing their land bank and they're future-proofing their available um, you know, capacity, if you will. Um, this does a number of things for the industry, which I think we'll probably get into here in a second about, about the money. But the uh, what it does is it creates a lot more long-term demand. And that long-term demand does a lot of very good things for planning. Because if you know that something's going to occur and you can plan for it to happen and you have time to be ready for it. And so I think that's one way of future-proofing that may be unintended. Um, but it's helping out most of their, uh, you know, uh, important supply chain uh, partners. AI is is changing the way that everybody kind of thinks about everything. Um, and it's mostly driven around GPU um, and the way that the GPUs perform and the infrastructure requirements of those GPUs, both in power and connectivity. And whenever there's a power requirement, there's obviously also a cooling requirement and or a heat removal requirement because cooling is not necessarily the correct term. Um, and so because it's new and because so few companies have a complete box around their AI goals, plans and development, there is a lot of attrition and churn currently in the design and purchasing and planning stages of all of these um, AI uh, facilities. Hmm. Interesting. And I guess they would also have some of some sort of impact between the, the relationship of uh, vendors versus customers or vendors and customers, let's not say versus. Um, how is that relationship kind of changing um, on the back of all that? So it used to be that, um, you know, end users, um, uh, customers would say, I need this from you, but I'm not going to tell you why or where it's going. I just need you to give me this one thing. and I need you to give me a price. And so that was the relationship. Okay, we make this one thing. So you came to us and then they would look at how your one thing interacted with all of their things, right? Today, they're like, we can't just put you in a box and ask you for something. We won't get the information we need. And that won't be beneficial to us when we come to you with money to give it to us because mm -hmm. we didn't tell you everything. So now they're kind of uh, opening up the kimono, if you will. And they're saying, look, here's all the things. Here's everything that we got. This is what we know. What can you do for us? How can you be creative in doing that thing for us? And what do you need from us to be able to guarantee that when you say you're going to do something, you're going to do it? 
because all of that backs into how they receive funding and how they get their leases signed with their end users because their end users don't want any surprises seven years into a lease. They want to say to this company, this co-location, this REIT, they want to say, all right, we're, we're okay with escalation charges after a certain year, but if we need to change infrastructure, we don't want you to go back to the drawing board and make us re-sign a different lease. So you need to be able to provide infrastructure that allows us to go from point A to point B without changing costs other than escalations normal throughout the life of the lease. If the operator can get to that point because they understand their suppliers and their supply chain, and their environment can can um, can come through on that promise, they will mm -hmm. get a lease signed. When that lease is signed, they can guarantee a return based on the triple net eff lease effectiveness, right? And they can go get funding, then they can build the thing that's going to get revenue coming in the door for that REIT and that fund. And then they can move on and go do it again. So speed to trust from a customer supplier relationship is important. That trust turns into um, promises from the, the operator to the, to the user. That promise turns into a lease and that lease turns into money and that money turns into a building. And then they go mm -hmm. do it again. And so it used to be a foundation of uh, keep them at arm's length. We don't really want them to trust us or us to trust them because we don't want them to know too much, right? Because they may raise the price. They may see that we have no other option and that's not monetarily efficient. Now it's trust first, right? Commercial mm -hmm. um, um, economic second, which is great. Um, it's very difficult. There's a lot going on. There's a lot that goes into building trust between a supplier and a vendor, but at least the market is being demanded to shift that way. And it's unfortunate that it took this AI explosion as the uh, necessity that's creating this innovation around new customer and uh, vendor uh, relationships. I think it's very important. I mean, trusts, again, I think for this second part of the conversation, trusts is the, the key word now. Um, and, and what you said, when you sign something, then you're not put forwards uh, another pricing point uh, in a couple of months or years' time. Uh, I think that's very important and things need to be upfront, um, especially as our sector now is becoming a bit more financial mature uh, in the conversations that we're having as well. Uh, which brings me then the question to, to budgeting, because especially with AI, I, I mean, my assumption, I'm, I'm actually, I feel lucky that I don't have to deal with budgets uh, to build these facilities, because I think it must be a nightmare nowadays to, to even try and understand what's coming um, in terms of costs to, to build the, the, the platforms. How, with everything that's going on, how do you kind of allow the budget to still be flexible um, to deploy the, the, the necessary capacity? Um, the things, and I mean, in this case, I guess AI is, is the key word, um, the things that AI are pushing forward that we cannot predict, because I mean, we might be planning for 100 megawatts now, but I mean, in three, four years time, 100 megawatts is not going to be a lot. We'll be looking at more, probably more like 400, 500 megawatts um, for the same thing. So how can budgets be flexible uh, in that sense? And how does the supplier then play a role in that flexibility? I think that uh, the word that I heard you say was predict. Right. Um, when anybody predicts anything, it's usually their opinion. Right. And so I'll, I'll go from predict to opinion and I'll go back to trust. How do people trust someone's opinion? Right. That's an that's a that's a subjective situation where you're you're using your own experience or whatever or, or things. And so what we've done to help with this is we say we don't we're not going to just 
hope that you trust us. And we're not going to be appalled when you don't, because you don't really have a reason to trust anyone's opinion. You can say, okay, that's your opinion. And I do agree with it or I don't, but you don't have to trust it, right? Sometimes we don't trust our own opinions because we don't have enough information. So what we did is we looked at how can we objectively create a much more predictive um, outcome. And so we've looked back on, you know, in stores 30 years of doing what we were doing, and we've aggregated a number of data points. Um, and then we created a solutioning tool that looks at all those data points that finds correlations between them. Um, and then we've, we study how those correlations can predict outcomes based on certain variables that are unknown. And then we look at all of those variables across the entire project lifecycle. And then we aggregate the outcomes of those variables, whether they're positive or negative from an effect standpoint on what we're trying to, to uh, predict. And then we produce a budget that is weighted based on how any of these variables could affect one another throughout the outcome of the, of the project. And we say, here is a budget that will not produce a change order based on all of these variables that we know may or may not happen. And so the customer, and it's analytical, it's mathematical, and it's objective, not subjective. And so we give it to them and we say, here's your budget. And then they trust it, right? They trust it. They trust it enough to go to a uh, an operator, a, a, a hyperscaler and say, here's your budget. It may be a little high, but guess what? That's the number. That's what it's going to be. There's not going to be change orders. And yes, we can do it in the time frame that we said, because we understand the variables that are at play that could affect the schedule. And then the operator says, thank you for that. It's objective data. We're going to use that and we're going to, we're going to get to a lease. And, and that's how we're going about creating budgets that are objective and not subjective, not based on opinion, based on, on, on many, many data points of historical fact. Okay. Um, so just for our um, listeners' clarity, InStore was recently acquired and uh, it was rebranded as Salivation. Uh, please please correct me if I'm wrong, but I think that that's correct. InStore became a Salivation um, a few months ago because you mentioned the last 30 years of InStore, just so people know it's the, it's kind of the same company, um, just a, a different phase of growth. Well, so Acceleration is our holding company, but InStore will mm -hmm. remain the brand that we go okay. to market And so... Um, in-store is our data center business unit brand, if you will. But Accelevation is our parent company. They're our holding company. Um, and in-store is wholly owned by them. But from a brand recognition standpoint, we'll continue to use that in-store name because of its market recognition. Okay. I take back what I said then. <laughs> no, no worries. <laughs> in-store no is Accelevation. <laughs> um, yeah, just no going back to, to what you were saying, because I've read a few things that you've written around something called the prison process. Um, is what you described the prison process or, or what is the prison process if it's not that? No, that is the prison process. You're correct. Um, the prison process is not just about solutioning, though. It all, it obviously is uh, goes into project management and then also into uh, service operations and the fulfillment of the project. So that is the budgeting part of our prison process. And that that the, the thing that I discussed just now, the operation, the process that I discussed is is part of a uh, proprietary solutioning tool, software tool that we use to uh, produce the benefits. I'm sorry, there's the dog. There it is. <laughs> he wants yeah. to be part of the, the podcast Stop. as well. Stop. Stop. Yeah, okay. Sorry. sorry about that. No, 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 no worries. <laughs> it's another guess. I knew, I knew it was going to happen. He snuck up on me. Still sure. behaved. It's nearly an hour into it, so he was, he was kind of good. <laughs> Not so bad. He just loves the barking oh. people that walk by, so... 
<laughs> I was going to ask, so for a more um, direct example around cost saving um, using the mm -hmm. present process. So if um, if I'm an operator and I'm coming to you and I want to build a data center, how can Prism help me save money? Um, so speed. Speed is the thing that costs operators the most money or a lack of speed. So any type of delay in the LOI to lease standpoint or a delay from the lease to the funding or a delay from funding to build or a delay from build to operator taking over is a delay in spending money and making money for them. And the longer there is between them spending money and then making it is substantial for their ability to go do something different or go use those resources to go scale in another place. And so what we do is we reduce that entire timeline by creating a very you know, efficient an effective objective budget in a very short amount of time so we can reduce that LOI to lease, lease to funding, funding to build, build to customer, which is revenue. Um, and so because there's such a long amount of time, the the any any day, month, week, month, we can reduce that is how we're saving those people money because the cost of capital now is actually quite high. And so um, if they're carrying capital costs without revenue, they're paying on interest. And if we cut down on the, the the time that they're carrying it, then we're dramatically putting money back in their pocket to go do the very next thing. Hmm, and so it, it all goes back to how the money flows. Um, from a more project-based standpoint, um, we reduce change orders in our process by 80%. Um, so a reduction in change orders basically means a reduction in cost, but it also means we know what the costs are going to be, which helps with you know, FP&A, financial planning. Um, and administration. And so if we're if we're doing financial planning and administration on the front end, then they more adequately understand the length that their capital is going to go so they can dedicate capital away from a change order bucket for a contingency to other projects they can do concurrently. So now they're growing their business faster as well. And so that's how we help. We just eliminate a lot of variables within that um, uh, process. Yeah, and it comes down again to trust speed. Um, and clarity on pricing. Always clarity on pricing. And it um, comes back to what I said in the beginning is understanding their pain. Their pain mm -hmm. is their pain. Their pain is how do we do this whole thing, not just this one thing that you do. Their pain is not getting a power whip from you know, the PDU to the rack. Their pain is getting a tenant to sign a lease so they can start building the building. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Uh, but then speaking about speeds of scalability. So of course, Insta is not part of a salivation. Uh, we got there right now. Um, how, so what's the plan for growth now? Um, are we going to see you going into new geographies? Are we going to see new products, um, and new hires? I mean, talk us through what the, the near term kind of, I mean, near term, 12 months, 24 months kind of plan is, uh, for the company. You will continue to see us try and productize certain things that we use the most within our white space fit up projects. So we will continue to try to consolidate the supply chain and integrate it. Um, that helps us better control the outcomes of the projects and helps us uh, reduce margin stacking by buying and reselling things um, for our customers. And so um, we're going to continue to capitalize on the commercial advantage that we have through our manufacturing capabilities. So you'll see some new products come out that will definitely be within the, the confines of what I just spoke about. You will see us venture into new geographies, but you'll see us follow customers there. Um, there's so much North American work right now that um, 
it would be distracting if we just decided to go stand up a new market without having a base customer or, or a, a tenant or a base, uh, you know, just a, an anchor customer, if you will, in a certain geography. So I'd say that will be um, a little bit slower to, to progress. Um, and then scale is we have to follow the customers. The customers are going to grow. So we're going to grow with them. Um, we don't plan on turning down work that is within our core competency. And so we're, we'll, we will grow our team, both our manufacturing team and our service side of the business to accommodate uh, the growth of our customers. Okay. Uh, I'm not going to ask for um, ping points on the map, but uh, I think we, we kind of can guess more or less some of the regions that you're going to be walking into in the next few months. Um, and yeah. then I was going to ask in terms of talent, because we, I think, especially on the first part of the chat that we're having, we're talking about the importance of really cultivating this culture um, of, uh, of inclusivity, letting people be part of the discussion. How are you finding things when it comes to hiring new talent? Um, and this could be the people with a lot of experience. Are there enough out there for you to do what you want to do? Uh, but then especially with younger people, so people coming into the market now, and I guess uh, millennials, but even the Generation Z now coming into market. How are you finding the, the hiring of those? Is it hard to find new people? What's what's in store doing around attracting new talent? Um we're doing our best. I'll tell you that it, it is difficult. Um, what, what I think is that, uh, <laughs> yeah, there's an odd expectation for some reason in our industry that people have to have like vast amounts of experience for them to be effective. Um, I don't, I don't um, uh, subscribe to that notion. I think that part of the reason that we created the, the solutioning tool that's part of our prison process is because we have very long tenured individuals that, um, may want to eventually retire at some point. And so how do you reduce that risk, right, from the talent leaving the industry? And so we created that tool to allow people without vast amounts of experience to come in, utilize the tool. Um, the tool accelerates their ability to make better decisions that they don't have experience to draw on. So we can scale effectively without having to find someone who's been in the business for 10 or 15 years. I also think that we've created an ecosystem of um, very, very talented individual with an, the individuals with amazing cultures that is drawing people from other parts of the industry to ours. And so we, we, you know, that's working out well for us. And then I think that it's other than that, it's just roll up your sleeves and do the hard work of finding people and um, gaining trust that you're the company that they should work for and then never stop doing that. Never, never stop working on that. Um, and we're still probably going to come up short every once in a while with who we need. We're still going to be working very, very long hours and we're still going to have some burnout and it's going to be managed and it's going to be discussed and we're going to have to do our best as a leadership team and as an organization to minimize it. Um, but it's understanding that those things are going to happen and not turning a blind eye to it. That's going to help us uh, continue to succeed. Yeah. And it's part of the, the business culture's evolution as well. Um, the things will change and adapt um, as new challenges um, come along. Uh, and then Sam, so as we're getting to the end, um, I'll bring it up again. Any worst advice, thoughts <laughs> by now? <laughs> I'd say worst advice is probably um, Someone told me one time, just make the decision because there's nothing they can do about it. Hmm. Right. Um, like 
for whatever reason, if someone doesn't have a choice, then the decision's easy, right? That that one's not great advice. I, I don't think that that ever works out in the long run. I think that is a very short-term mentality. I think that it's a very uh, easy thing to rationalize when you're stressed and you need to make a quick decision. Um, but that goes back to the have patience, right? Do it the right way. Do it, do, do it. How you do anything is how you do everything. So if you're going to make a massive decision and you're going to take a lot of time and you're going to get some input and you're going to ask smart people their opinions, then you should do that for a small decision, right? You should, you should think about it. You should pause. Kevin Cashman wrote a great book called The Pause Principle, where it just literally tells you to stop. Don't do anything. Think about it. Go back through it. Chase down all the rabbit holes of, of what this could do. And I think if we do that for small decisions, then we can move forward. Now, again, I'll go back to don't let perfection get in the in the in the in the way of progress. So there are no absolutes here. I don't want everybody to think that I'm just on one end of the spectrum or other. Everything's kind of down the middle, right? So um, uh, compromise in all things, I guess. Yeah, it, it is adaptability. adaptability. Um, and uh, you might have actually answered my last question. And this is one that I like to ask everyone that comes on. Um, what, what is your favorite quote by who and why? Oh, that's funny. Um, it is. It, I guess one of them for sure is how you do anything is how you do everything. Right. I, I, um, I have three little boys and and they think that, you know, practice is boring, whatever they're practicing in, whether it's school or whether it's sports. And I'm like, how you, if you practice poorly, you're going to play poorly and the games matter and winning's fun. So practice like you're going to play. And I say, how you do anything is how you do everything. And, you know, maybe that's a little bit too uh, elevated for a nine-year-old, but eventually you know, my, my theory is eventually that'll register when they're 15 or 16 and they'll be like, Oh, that's what dad meant. And so, you know, if you're going to clean your room, like clean your room, like make it spotless, do it the right way. If you're going to clean the bathroom, that toilet needs to be shining. Like, what's the point, right? What's the point of doing something if you're going to do it halfway. And so do everything the whole way, like do everything the whole way, clean the kitchen, the whole way, pick up your toys, the whole way, practice like you mean it work out like you mean it, make decisions like you mean it, whether big or small, you know, love people like you mean it, um, you know, be interested in people like you mean it, do everything the way you would do anything or do anything the way you do everything. So it's a, that's kind of a life motto for, for me and uh, it's worked out pretty well. So. Yeah, absolutely. No, I, I I don't remember where the study came from and what the actual figure was, but I read something somewhere once that about 90% of businesses fail. Uh, because people do kind of things halfway and, and they, they give up on it. Um, and that is the biggest business killer. It is the fact that people just don't stick to it uh, and don't do things properly and go until the end with it. Um, so that, that's very interesting. But uh, so I really appreciate our chat. I think some of the key words that came out for me, it's consistency, trusts and um, and speed. Um, and I think part of it cost saving as well. But uh, consistency, trust and speed, I think were kind of the, the three key words um, that came up for me out of our conversation. And I really, really enjoyed it. Um, so Sam Prudmore, President of Facilitations Davis in the Business Unit, thanks so much for talking to me. Thank you. Have a good one. And to our listeners, thank you for tuning in. And don't forget to review and share this episode and follow the Great Business Minds podcast on all your favorite streaming and social media platforms. You can find the links in the podcast description. Thank you again to our sponsor, Prescal & Co., a leading award-winning City of London law firm internationally recognized for its expertise in the digital infrastructure industry, as well as the telecoms and tech sector more broadly. Feel free to reach out to them at www.prescal.com. 
do subscribe to the podcast and we invite you back again for the next episode of the definitive show for the business of digital infrastructure the great business minds podcast see you then